Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African-American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades, from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Don't punish us with brutality. That's what we always want to say, because certainly there is a lot going on in America today. And uh, we can call it brutality. We can call it uh, <clears throat> a whole bunch of things. And, and, and we're going to call it that tonight. So hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. And as I do with every show before we always get started, I always pause and say thank you, Jesus, for just allowing me to have this platform of having this uh, show being able to reach out, talk, discuss, and, and set the record straight in, in a lot of cases, but more importantly, just open up a, a avenue of dialogue so that we can talk and discuss about the issues that are affecting us the most as African-Americans, first and foremost, but as a country, secondarily. And so I'm always grateful to uh, you for tuning in and listening. It's, it's exciting to me because I never know exactly what kind of show we're going to have or how the show is going to turn off. So there's a little adrenaline rush. And at the same time, it's that nerves about exactly making sure we get everything on, we get everything right. And uh, if we don't get it right, that, you know, we, we try to get it right the next time. But uh, for the most part, that we at least have a productive uh, dialogue that allows us to know and understand exactly what's at stake for us socially, economically, and politically. And, and trying to address those issues. So uh, please, you know, join us each and every Monday as, uh, as we uh, broadcast live here on, uh, on uh, blackpoliticstoday.com and Blog Talk Radio. And also share with your friends and colleagues to download us after the show. Uh, we always appreciate that support by you downloading us after the show. Even if you listen to us live, download it uh, right after the show. Take it with you on the road, share it with folks, send it out, tweet it out, 
uh, share it with your followers and get them involved in the discussion. Because unless we start talking about a whole lot of stuff that's going on and recognizing and understanding what's happening, uh, there's going to be a lot at stake for us. So if you want to join the conversation tonight, you can give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. And one of the things that always interests me uh, as I continue to do this show and continue to think about or, or read and hear about different things that are happening in the news, one of the things that always is you know hitting me, especially when we look in the fact that we, you know, we've we've come into the 21st century. We're now in the new millennium, and we've elected our first African American president. Uh, as African Americans, we've had a lot of firsts. We've had Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum last year. We had Gene Upshaw years ago as the first black football coach, head coach. And we had Frank Robinson breaking the racial barrier. Bob Johnson and Oprah Winfrey. We've experienced a lot of firsts, and in some cases, we got a second chance or, or a second and a third to join us, and we became a commonplace after that. So it's common to see African Americans on the football field. It's common to see them in the, bas- in the baseball arena, even as coaches. Uh, we still haven't gotten to ownership yet, but uh, it, it's a commonplace to see us in those, in those areas. And then something interesting happened during 2017 and 2018. We began to see a lot of firsts for white folks, too. White folks calling police on black folks just for doing what they normally do, like buying groceries, getting medicine, filling a prescription. How about being an entrepreneur and selling water on the corner like we see every day in the summertime here in the DMV? Or maybe even using a coupon when you go to shopping. All of this came to life in 2017 and 18, where white people became visceral with their disdain for black people and began to express themselves through the true prisms in which they beheld, which I feel were racist prisms, white nationalist prisms, bigoted prisms. And in 2019, more than 100 years after Jim Crow and merely 70 after it was abolished, We got a whole lot of white folks putting on black faces. And as many of you have heard about and and read and seen on the news, Virginia governor admitted that back in college and in medical school, he put on black face to dress up like Michael Jackson. The attorney general, he also put on black face to represent his favorite rapper at the time. And then I've ran across this, which was, a sweater that costs $900 by Gucci that pulls up over your nose and it's it's like a turtleneck sweater. You pull it up over your nose and it has a cutout for lips and they're red lips. Now this just came out, I think this past weekend. And it shocked me to think this is 2019. So The governor and the attorney general, who both dressed up in blackface, now the governor did his back in 1984. That wasn't that long ago. And so there there really isn't any excuse for that. It wasn't 1940. It wasn't 1950 or 1960. It was 1984. But for Gucci to come out and create and design and make 
thousands of sweaters that they have been selling wherever they've been selling them, here in the U.S., abroad, or wherever, charge $900 for it and put big red lips on it where the mouth is and then wonder why there's outrage. And then to put matters worse is they had a Caucasian woman modeling the sweater. Then you had Prada who had to pull their product back at Christmas time where they had these featured two monkeys on the side. I think it was a, a perfume bottle or something of that nature. And they had to pull that, but then they turned right around again this year from what I, from what I believe it was either this year or, or most recently. And they had these Katy Perry shoes that literally have blue eyes. I think they're blue eyes on the, on the strap of the shoe and then big red lips on the front of the shoe by the toe, symbolizing another black face. Are you kidding me? I understand that we have to, you know, sometimes get past certain things and allow some things to go. And, and when people ask for apologies and ask, you know, express their true sorrow, we can embrace them and do some things. But give me a break. What the hell was this? Is America coming to? Because really, this is why it infuriates me when I hear so many people tell me, especially black folks tell me, they didn't vote, they didn't register to vote, or maybe they go out and they buy the products that have just done something explicitly racist to our community and our culture. And then they don't care, but they still go out and buy and support it. And they brush it off as like, so what? Or they don't stand their ground long enough to create an issue where the policies are, or the attitude can be changed. And so they don't stand their ground long enough to object to the treatment that they're given. They're just willing to go in there and do it anyway. That's what bothers me about you have companies that move or put their business in what we call the hood or, or, or in, in our inner cities, but then they have the bulletproof glass up. They don't want to do business with you personally, but they want your money. So you got to slide your money under the bulletproof glass or they'll put it in the turnstile and, and turn around and bring your product to you. I try my best to not ever support or go into those places. Only place there, and I have to do business there because I'm either low on gas or, or whatever, because that's the only reason why I'm going to go in there. Outside of that, I'm going to go where there's no glass. The hair care products. I know a lot of women, they have to go to the hair care product stores, and they do the same thing. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Black people, wake up. And if you're spending your money with somebody, your spending power is great to change the treatment in this country. Become sick and tired of being sick and tired. And let's make a change and do something different. Because this idea of what I see of white folks putting on black faces, it's not just in the sense of them just putting on black faces to do things. But I mean in the metaphorical way of putting on black faces to try to cozy up to us to want our support or want us to defend or want us to do things for them, only to turn around to do it again. 
are to turn around and not support us or turn around and put in policies that don't benefit us. So get sick and tired of being sick and tired and put your money where your power is and use your money and your economic resources to make and produce change. My guest tonight, to share with me what their thoughts on the ideas of white folks putting on black faces is none other than our BPT contributor, principal at Carruthers, uh, Carruthers Consulting and progressive political strategist, Rebecca Carruthers. Rebecca is a political strategist. She is an attorney and she is well known uh, in the DMV and across the country for all of her uh, work as a political consultant and providing progressive uh, training as well as insight for those who are looking to get into the political arena. Also joining me tonight is the president and founder of Transformative Justice Coalition and talk show host of Igniting Change uh, with Barbara Atwine. Uh, excuse me, Barbara Arnwine is Barbara Arnwine. Barbara is a civil rights attorney and activist. Her weekly international talk show provides provocative and empowering information and discusses design discussions designed to ignite change and inspire action in achieving racial justice, social justice, and equality. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us tonight. Always, always. It's always a pleasure to have you, uh, Rebecca, as well as you, Barbara. Uh, We've been on a couple of shows together, and uh, I've had you on my show in the past, so I'm glad you're back and available for us this evening, because I really want to... get your take, especially uh, coming out of the civil rights um, uh, genre or mantra. Uh, You've been an attorney, you've been an activist, you've been practicing and advocating for reform for a number of years. So when you look and you see 2019 come up and you're popping your champagne and you see the confetti coming down and you imagine blackface are coming up everywhere in 2019, this isn't 1950, 1960. It's not even 70. This is like 1984 and 2018 and 2019. What does that say about our society? Well, you know, I have always predicted that we would be in this moment because there's no way to really deconstruct white structural racism that has been the underpinning of the United States in particular without having this kind of moments of confrontation, moments of, you know, not necessarily reconciliation, but moments where we come to grips with what this monster really is and how embedded it is and practically every single institution of the United States. And so I've always felt that as the population changed and as the demographics became darker, that there would have to be a moment at which America would have to make two decisions, would have to make, I should say, one or or the other of two options, choose either to really become a new, inclusive democracy uh, and to rework its inequality that has been built on the basis of race and gender 
uh, and to, you know, really confront its past and be honest about it and strive, or it could take the road of South Africa, uh, which uh, where you had a, uh, a white minority dominate a black majority for decades, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, and right. using, you know, brutal political power, uh, all kinds of institutional structures, because, you know, technically, if you talk to whites from South Africa, they'll tell you, we did not have, uh, you know, racist laws. And what they're hiding behind is that in many instances, the laws that they were relying upon looked, looked, you know, neutral in their face, but some of them were clearly very racist, very apartheid mm-hmm. centered. Uh, but, you know, but it's fascinating to watch where we are. So I knew we would come to this moment. And uh, in the question, I mean, having a black president brought the moment, you know, to a, uh, to a I would say, to a four. Um, having, you know, some of the uh, economic inequality issues has also made the issue even more stronger. But we should be very clear that this moment in America was inevitable, uh, that, you know, you either are going to open it up are you going to artificially close it down, which means you can only do that with brutality, with absolute white supremacist domination and brutality. And white supremacist domination, let's be clear, does not mean that the only actors are going to be whites who are perpetuating that supremacy. The David Clarks of the world are going to live, the Sheriff David Clark. You're going to mm-hmm. have like the Asian guy who was yelling white power, right? I mean, you're right. going to have these <laughs> allies. That's crazy. That's right. That's white just crazy. At black people. White power. I and mean, hey, you're Asian. And you, I mean, <laughs> <Right>. it's like. <laughs> so, I mean, so, you know, you're going to have you're going to have those moments. You're going to have those encounters. You know, the reality is that white racism has always had a, an inflexive, uh, reactive um, principle when it's come to blacks. That, you know, there's mm-hmm. always this, you know, keep them in their place, right, right. order, use the police, use the forces. What part of the video, the reality that we're now in a time where you can capture all of this on video means that we're capturing what has always been happening, but people are feeling right. And people are feeling emboldened though by this president. Exactly. At 1600 uh, espousing this. And the last thing I want to say, everyone is that when you look at Prada, Gucci, and all of that, don't divorce it from, it's not commercialism that you're watching. Don't divorce it from the fact that global anti-blackness is on the rise mm-hmm. uh, under the mantra yeah. of what's called white ethno-nationalism. It's what binds you know, people in France, to people in Netherlands, to people, to you know, for, right-wing forces in Italy, to uh, Putin in Russia, to other, you know, forces all over the world that are just determined that white should, you know, that white supremacy should be the rule of the world. 
to be a global operation. And people are missing this. It's the globalism. When you, if people have not been following what Steve Bannon's been doing post White House, he's been building this white ethno nationalism movement. He's been traveling back and forth it to is. Europe, and it there's is. a whole lot exactly. of folks. It is. Yes. So, so should anyway, we? So, I just should to we? It right. So should we be taking a broad brush to this and 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 paint everyone in this box, or do we need to use some discretion? When and limit it to just the South and places like Virginia. I mean, are no. are we going to have to worry about this in in New York? Are we going to have to worry about this in, uh, in New Jersey or California? Oh, yeah. You know, San Francisco. So, I, I would like to jump in here, Kelly. So <clears throat> I have a very ahead. interesting experience. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and in Omaha, um, Omaha proper was roughly ten percent African American, even though it was the birthplace of Malcolm X. And there's something that we even have to talk about in this discussion. Like I heard both of you all point out structural racism within our different structures, within different uh, parts of, of society. But there is also casual racism, that, that everyday racism that white people and even uh, people of color internalize and they carry out. So when you use the example of um, the Asian law enforcement officer um, who was screaming out white power, or when we look at a George Zimmerman, what we see is that racism has become so casual that people who are in that system start to internalize it. They repeat those things, and they act on those things. And I think that's very important. For example, yes, today, um, Jim Hood and Matias, the Democratic nominee, um, he's the presumptive Democratic nominee for um, governor um, in this 2019 Mississippi gubernatorial race. He had a press conference today, and he was talking about blackface in yearbooks because one of the schools he attended, there was blackface um, in, his, in, in the yearbook during the time he was on campus and was associated with one of, with the fraternity that he was a member of. And so he was asked a series of questions. He was asked about the Ku Klux Klan. His response, and I kid you not, was, oh, well, in high school I heard about the KKK. I thought it was a joke. We didn't learn about it in our history books. It wasn't until I prosecuted the Mississippi burning cases as AG that I realized you know, how devastating the Klan was, not just to black Mississippians, but also to the Choctaw Nation. Now, the movie Mississippi Burning was in 1988. He didn't try these cases till 2005. So this grown adult human being says that it wasn't until 14 years ago that he took the KKK seriously and started to understand the fear that black people had for the KKK, and he wants to be the governor of Mississippi. Part of the issue is in this country, and this is something from being from experiencing growing up in a very white agrarian area such as Nebraska, is that white folks don't have to deal with the idea of racism. They don't have to deal with, quote, unquote, the racial stuff. They can live their entire life and not interact with people who don't look like them. But as mm-hmm. a black person in this country, even if you live in a black enclave, you still at some level 
interact with white people. So you have to learn how to deal with people who racially identify opposite of you. White people in this country don't have that experience. So for them, some of them really don't know. And the reason why they don't know, because they don't have to, because of structural racism and oppression and white supremacy in this country, they, their lives are literally set up in a way where they only see whiteness as the standard and whiteness is the only currency that they interact with. And I think that's important to point out, especially as we have this conversation. Not excusing white people, not excusing right. them. I can't right. go as far as D.L. Hughley and say, hey, at least Liam Neeson spoke his truth. I, I can't go there because Liam Neeson was George Zimmerman, except he didn't find his Trayvon. All right. All right. Fortunately. Well, can I, fortunately. And let, me, and let me get in on this because I think, you know, we think of racism in a stratified way, and that's mm-hmm. a mistake. You know, structural racism is not institutional racism by itself. It's not systemic racism by itself. It's not what you call gratuitous racism, which is what she just described, the cash right. racism. <clears throat> right, uh, the casual side of it. Just, uh-huh, it's not just individualized racism. Structural racism is, is structural racism. It's all of that because it cannot exist without all of its. It, it needs all of its components, all mm-hmm. of its operations, all mm-hmm. of the embedded stereotypes, all of the embedded uh, beliefs, all the the subtle things that people keep and get into their mind about their identity. I mean, you know, I I always take people back to Andrew Hacker's book, Two Nations. It's like an essential read, right? Because what he says is so powerful. That here he is, a white teacher, and he's taught, you know, all these classes. And every time he, he asks the white students, do they benefit from racism? They all say, oh, hell to the no. You know, no way. No way. You know, we are, you know, we did it through our bootstraps. My parents did it. We all worked hard. You know, we weren't here doing slavery, etc. But then he says to them, he says to them, okay, solid. So what if I give everyone in this room $50,000, some kind of huge amount of money, uh, Mm -hmm. if you would change your racial identity, and you're out, you know, your whole physical appearance and everything to be black. You know, since you say that there's, you know, affirmative action, blacks are benefiting from it, they can do two fours if they're women and black, so there's so on all these things you said. And you said that there is no advantage to being white, so I'm going to give you this huge sum of money to be black. And he says, and how many of you would take me up on it? Not one hand goes up. Ever. Not one hand goes up. Exactly. Never. Because mm-hmm. whites are very conscious and a very, because of white structural racism, because of the embedded, unconscious, perpetuated stereotypes, they are aware of their privilege. And he says that, you know, that you got to go that deep to, to really get people to start seeing how much they got invested in this, but that's part of the game, you know. I mean, if you studied American racial politics, you know 
that this country went on a purposeful campaign all throughout the 1800s, but really it intensified right after the Civil War and mm-hmm. did not and has been constantly you know, embedded and perpetuated all the way through the 1930s, conscious campaigns where newspapers were part of the, the game, colleges, universities, everything was everything. to everything. uplift white right. supremacy. And right. it was conscious. It was not, you know, uh, you know. Yeah, it wasn't the, subtle. The president it wasn't Wilson, subtle. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't subtle. It was, there's it no wasn't subtlety about it. It wasn't coincidental. Yeah. It, was yeah. it was purposeful. Deliberate it was purposeful. And, yeah. and drilled. And that is what I mean, let's look at it. We are, yeah. I mean, Jim Crow after Reconstruction and, and up to 1950, everything, I mean, those laws were purposely put in place, passed, mm-hmm. used to make sure that we did not get anything or, or um, advance economically in any fashion. And it's amazing well, to me that even today, there is still that, what I say is that, that fear of, of, of losing or that fear of a takeover, right. the fear of black folks taking over. Oh my God, they're going to take over. And it's that fear that they're going to do to us what mm-hmm. we did to them. Oh my God, they're going to do to us what we did to them. And, and we have to stop that. We cannot have that. We cannot do that. We, we have to make sure we control Wall Street. We have to make sure we control all the banks and the economic structures. Because if we don't, we're in trouble. If you want to join us tonight, it's 516-590-0143. 516-590-0143. I'm going to take a quick break and we'll come back. And I want to talk about how we look at these little everyday things of white folks calling the cops on us and then how that translates into what we're looking at now, what you were saying, Barbara, and the neo-white nationalist type movement. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. If you're not facing your mortgage issues, This can be the most terrifying sound in the world. It means you've fallen behind. It means hope is dwindling. It means you're another call closer to losing your home to foreclosure. Fortunately, there's hope. If you need real help and guidance, call 1-888-995-HOPE. That's 1-888-995-4673. Because nothing is worse than doing nothing. A public service announcement brought to you by NeighborWorks, the Ad Council, and this station. Mom, thanks for taking me to work. Gee, there are lots of people here who don't look like you. Asian people, African Americans, Latinos, everybody's different. Yes, and those differences are good because they mean different ways of seeing, thinking, and doing things. So how come where we live, everyone looks just like us? Diversity shouldn't be left behind at work each day. In our neighborhoods, we can prepare our children for the global life that lies ahead. To better understand the benefits of diversity in your community, log on to www.aricherlife.org. Brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance. You're listening to Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, 
and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. My guest tonight is BPT contributor and principal of Carruthers Consulting, Rebecca Carruthers, as well as uh, Barbara Arnwine, who is the president and founder of Transformative Justice Coalition. And she's also a civil rights attorney and civil rights activist. Uh, Rebecca, uh, I, I'm, I'm always interested. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm not always interested, but I'm always, <laughs> it's, it's always it's always interesting to me that uh, in, in times when we're talking about issues of race or we're talking about uh, uh, issues of, of diversity and things of that nature, that one of the uh, uh, commercials that seems to play is the, the fair housing one and the girl talking about, you know, hey, we live in an all-white community and there's nobody diverse in our community. And how you were just and and you were just talking about it, and how Barbara was just uh, uh, referring to it as well, and thinking about that whole system of, of of structure and how they want and keep things so um, vanilla, so white in their area because they they don't they don't you know they're not coming into the city, but it's it's always interesting to me that. Whenever gentrification hits or whenever, you know, coming back into the city, they wanted to do the white flight, but they always want to come back into the city and come into the neighborhoods. And then you end up pushing, you know, all the all, all, um, people of color out and you're no longer in that, you know, diverse situation where, you know, your community was your community. There had, may have been some diversity, but it was your community. But now it always changes and switches over. I think it's very important to talk historically when it looks when we look at um, at um, land ownership as well as mm-hmm. um, home property. You, right. When we even go back almost what 140 years, 150, 160 years, and we look at in the Midwest and out west, and we look at some of the homestead exemptions and the homestead acts, and we even right. see that there were certain immigrants from Eastern Europe who were even uh, recruited to move to the Midwest, move to the Great Plains, move to very cold areas to help um, populate those areas. When we look at the influx of Swedish and Polish and Mm -hmm. later um, 1890s, um, some of the Irish immigrants and how they went to um, um, Kansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska and South Dakota and Montana and Wyoming and how they ended up in this country. That's one thing. And then 20, 30 years later, we started to see the beginnings of the Great Northern Migration, and we see large swaths of blacks moving um, up to the north, to the Midwest, and to the west because of those um, nightly terrors, a.k.a. the Klan, going throughout Mm -hmm. the south. We see there wasn't that um, welcoming there wasn't that promise of land given, you know, for a dollar here or $5 down or $20 like it, it occurred, you know, 30 years prior. 
And then when we look at during the time in the 20th century where we start to see um, an increase in home ownership, some of it was in part to the GI Bill. Even though there were black folks and white folks who served in our military, we saw that our black um, soldiers came back and they were either denied the use of those GI benefits or they were given the runaround and they weren't able to buy those homes in the 40s and the 50s, which meant that their kids who were then going to college in the late 60s and 70s, they weren't able to have a second mortgage or take out an equity loan to help pay for their kids to go through go to college like some of their white counterparts did and then it didn't impact that next generation where now you have a home that you own for 30 years you're able to pull out some of that equity and then give your grandchildren a down payment so then they could purchase a home like what some of my white counterparts were able to do so when you look so that's on one side as even before you get to the redlining and that's even before you get to the mortgage disparities that even happened um, in 2004, 2005, where Wells Fargo got into a lot of trouble, even though they should have had a higher fine that they had to pay the federal government for um, having these ARM, these adjustable rate mortgage loans that they gave to their black customers who mm-hmm. qualify for traditional and lower interest loans. And so mm-hmm. when you look at how wealth is transferred in this country, in a capitalist country like the United States, it is transferred in part through um, estate, and, uh, and that estate money is also tied to real property because real property is the only type of property that will continue to um, grow and increase right. in value over time. Appreciate over car, time. Which is, right. Yes. Yeah, appreciate the value. Property. Personal right. property. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So Barbara, and and thinking about all this and then also looking at this idea of of these folks coming out in black faces in twenty nineteen mm-hmm. and the idea that Prada would want to design a sweater in the fashion that they designed this sweater or the shoes that they designed for Katy Perry. And they yeah, I mean you're paying nine eight nine hundred a thousand dollars for this product and people are actually buying it and wearing it and i i said to uh uh my guest last week uh when we were talking about um other issues that that depicted racial overtones that just the idea that you would want to associate with it and purchase it and buy it what does that say about you as an individual It says that you're just carrying out the two purposes of, you know, white structural racism. And basically, you know, it has two tenets. And if you look back, I mean, I dare anybody to challenge me and win on this. There's two things white structural racism has always done. One is it's always advantaged whites which is what we're talking about when we're talking about the Homestead Act, the white utopia mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. tried to build in Idaho, Washington, Oregon, all of that based on the Homestead Act, all of these things. We, it's always advantaged whites. The second thing it's always done is it's always led to black subordination. African American is always, and blackface is fundamentally 
folks, a subordination play. It is designed to say, look at you inferior, funny-looking, sample-looking blacks. Ha, ha, ha. Right, and because that was, that was the way it was originally, that's the way it was originally designed and came out was. Um, and that's the way uh, it's laid a, down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, on, on stage, I'm going to be the blackface. Ha, ha, ha. I'm right. a fanboy and I'm going to crack up ha, and ha, right. look at this. Look at me. I look just like a little monkey. I look this way. I look that way. Right. And, and, and I can and, play the sweater and take it off, right? Right. And so <laughs> it's it's just mind-boggling to me that and 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 the fact is that black folks are going to go out there and buy these Prada shoes or buy this or buy that and think nothing of it which because remember what did, what did George Washington say everybody I mean you know people need to you know our history is so key because it tells us how we got to where we are today George Washington and his writings now, people talk about him all the time as first president, but one of the things he wrote was that the most important element of slavery was not the physical control. Right. It was the psychological control. Yes, correct. correct. Right. He said if you can build the, the, into the slave, the black slave, you know, a psychological order, where That's he right. respects the white man first, where he understands his, quote, inferiority, that if you can build that, then you don't need as many whips and chains right. and other devices. And that was echoed by the writings of Thomas Jefferson. You know, people have not, you know, people want to talk about the Declaration of Independence, but I always say, no, you got to read the letters, you know, the letters of Virginia, where he actually lays down his thoughts about psychological control of blacks. And you need to, you know, so I think that we still live in an order, in a world where black people, a lot of, a lot of black people, still have a psychological uh, subordination to these racist ideas. We will jump up and down, jump on a couch, jump on a table, and scream about, you know, how bad blacks are and and not have a clue about anything positive that black people have done. White people, on the other hand, you don't see them doing that. They're not sitting up yelling. They will fight over class, money, economics, health, mm-hmm. all these issues. But they don't fight with the same kind of anger about their rate, about, about, you know, saying, you know, well, you know, we whites are so horrible. We're so terrible. We're so inferior. We're so bad. Because that's not the way the game plays. The game right. always says white is the standard. White is the best. And that's what's been drilled into our people. If we were not an oppressed people mentally, Mm -hmm. if we were not an oppressed people mentally, think of what we could do. Just think of it. Think of the power we could yield. But 99% of our problems go to this mental oppression, and it's reinforced by everything in society. 
It's just reinforced. Every day you turn that mirror, you know, like, you know, what is it called? The hall of mirrors when you go into the, the you know, the fun mirrors uh, in right. the you know, playhouse. Right, they change and give you all different, right, right. Exactly. It's the same, you know, play. And we need to understand that and that part of parenting and part of what I've had. To oh, do don't get me started on parenting. Don't get me started else. on that. It's don't get me started on that. I am. Yes, you build that oh awareness and those mental defenses, right? So they don't yeah. fall into that stuff. Yeah. It's Rebecca, let me let me uh, uh, bring up a controversial little uh, uh, topic here because um, <laughs> it it it's it it's interesting to me um, that a democratic state representative in Virginia is deciding to put out impeachment orders on Lieutenant governor uh, um, of Virginia for the claims of, of uh, sexual assault that he's, he's facing without an investigation and I understand the seriousness of the the um, uh, allegations and what's happening. But my question is, the idea that he wants to impeach the lieutenant governor, but he did not want to impeach the governor, and he wants to do that without a hearing. He He didn't want to have a hearing or even an investigation. He just wanted to impeach him. But how the difference is where Donald Trump has been accused of assaulting more than 20 women, nothing has come up about it, but uh, African-American is accused of assaulting two women, very serious in all the accounts of both against Trump and against um, uh, uh, the lieutenant governor. But is it? Uh, a sort of a, a a play is this is this politics or is this sort of a a, a racial overtone of another another kind where we're going to say we're going to impeach him because he's been accused but we're not going to do anything else to anybody else. So this 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 whole situation in Virginia has so many layers. Um, it really does. You know, it really does. <laughs> It is, and it's it unfortunate is, that it, it, it's coming about in the way that it is, especially with the lieutenant governor with the the sexual assault allegations. But it's it's just crazy. Right, and it's a conversation that's very nuanced. Um, so we so over the last week, I've gotten so many calls, so many inboxes, so many emails <laughs> and text messages around this issue. And I always be asked, well, you know, you're a Democrat, what do you think? You're a political strategist, what do you think? You're a lawyer, what do you think? Um, you're a woman, what do you think? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. That's right. right. And you're a black woman, what do you think? You worked in politics since you were a teenager and you've been right. to different uh, political conventions, what do you think? Yeah. Right. And, you know, it made me reflect on some of my personal experiences uh, within politics. And I, I would say this. If the Democratic Party, if the National Democratic Party and the Virginia State Party called me up, I was like, Rebecca, in your professional opinion as a strategist, what should we do? My first response is all of them need to go. Um, the reason why I say that is, 
it is unacceptable for the governor of Virginia to have participated in blackface, admit it, and then walk it back, and then try to act like he didn't know how this picture of blackface and the Ku Klux Klan appeared on his yearbook page, which he had to sign off on, to try to justify and say, oh, well, I was, you know, uh, I was in school. He was about 25 years old, and as my understanding, your early 20s is when your frontal right. lobe fully develops, and you are a full, <laughs> capable adult. <laughs> also, seeing a medical professional where we have huge health disparities because of right. white bias against black folks in this country, right. and black folks are dying prematurely because of the lack of cultural competency, I hold him to a higher standard, and he has shown that, yes, he has failed to live to that standard, and then to say, oh, well, I mean, it's not as much as what I did in the past, but it's about what I've done since then. Well, since then, now you're holed up in your office reading Roots by Alex Haley because your staff is telling you, you need to read some books on the black experience. Right. That's the problem. <laughs> so we have that. Yeah. And like, we have with Justin Fairfax the very serious allegations. I've yeah. heard from a lot of black women, and some of the response has been varied to, hey, we've all been in experiences like this. You make the best of it. You move on. I've also heard, well, hey, why didn't she report it then? I also heard, well, how do we know this isn't a political hit? I've also heard, well, maybe she's getting paid, or maybe now the multiple women are getting paid. The bottom line is, do people find um, political opportunistic ways to use anything? Absolutely. Do I think these allegations are also being spun politically? Absolutely. That doesn't negate that if these things happen, or if Justin has has a past of sexual aggression, Towards women, because people who abuse people sexually, people who sexually harass, people who rape, they do because it's about power. It's not about the sex itself. And so even with that power, there is a pattern of it. Um, For Justin, if he called me up and asked for my advice, my advice is demand an investigation. Right. Now, for the voters of um, of Virginia, they have the right to say they don't have confidence in someone. And if they believe that they don't have confidence in an elected official, they have several remedies. Now, to that white member of the Virginia, um, was it Senate or the Assembly? I think it was the Assembly. That the Assembly said, you have until Monday, Justin, to resign. Otherwise, I'm going to drop these articles of impeachment. Well, the Black Caucus last night sat with him and said, no, sir, (laughs) you do not get to make that call. And I do agree from based upon what I know at this moment. I don't know what's about to come out in later days, but based upon what I know at this moment, I think that was the right call by um, the Black um, Caucus in Virginia. But it's still, it's an issue. I do have a problem politically and practically if the only person in all this Virginia drama that leaves office is the black guy. That looks bad for the Democratic Party. It it bodes 
poorly for whether or not Democrats are going to pick up that extra Senate seat and um, flip the Senate in Virginia. It mm-hmm. looks bad up and down the ballot, and it's horrible for 2020 when Democrats yeah. know that they have to win Virginia in 2020. Right. I'm right. curious to see what the folks down in Prince William County is saying, because Prince William County is the bellwether county in Virginia, and I'm very curious to um, to what people in Prince William are saying tonight. Well, I know that they did have a poll, and I did hear that the uh, uh, state legislator did decide to rescind his his threat uh, against Fairfax, and that was my point. And the and the question is like, you came out and you gave him forty eight hours to resign, but you said nothing about Northam. And even when uh, Herring came out and said, well, yeah, he did blackface too, you said nothing to him. Now I recognize that we're talking about a a what would be a criminal. Uh, offense compared to just a moral, you know, social, you know, uh, um, well, black uh, is a racism, though, too, if you ask, right, <laughs> right, 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 but you know how they're going to look at it, right, but you know how they're going to look at it, right, right, you know how they're going to look at it, so it's like, oh, yeah, well, that was just a, a, a mistake, and he didn't know, and, and I have to, <laughs> and, and you have to ask yourself, the school, like you said, there's like seven or eight people who are on this yearbook committee, and all of them signed off on this. And then the school itself signed off on this and allowed this thing to be published. And you have to ask yourself, just like I, I asked Barbara about Prada, the fact that you made this sweater, you designed this sweater, you sent this sweater out to be made. No one at no point in time said anything about, uh, I got a question. Uh, do you think this is going to be a good idea in 2019 for us to put this out there? Katy Perry, when I do you think to... it's going to be a good idea for you to put your name on these shoes and, and, and go out there? I mean, I'm waiting for the backlash against her to allow her name again to be put on them, knowing what was going to be designed and what was going to be made with her name on it. I mean, all well, these things are just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, and the one thing I do want to say, yes, and one thing I do want to say um, before we you know, our time runs up is I do want to say that you know, I do think that you got to take Professor Tyson pretty seriously, because remember, if we if we got this timeline right, she did not just make and retain attorneys and just get involved in this in 2018 and 2019. She actually approached the Washington Post quite a while ago when he she was right she approached the post when he was running for lieutenant governor uh, but they couldn't find any corroborators yeah they couldn't exactly. find any corroborators in 2017 so people right. shouldn't be but that part was but the story. act occurred in 2004 exactly and part of the yeah. wrong story that people got out there is that she just came forth that's not correct the other right. thing is you know cuz you know and I'm, you know I went to scripts that's my alma mater uh, mm-hmm. I went to Duke for law school. That's my alma mater. I know yeah. these institutions, and I understand what the professors are like, especially at Scripps. And I can tell you she has nothing to gain from coming out. It's a women's school, but it's not what people think. She has nothing to gain. In fact, this is a huge problem for her. And I just think that we have to sit back and – Take these allegations seriously. I believe you yes, have absolutely. an investigation. 
right. and it has to be fair. Uh, but I, but I just think that you know a lot of brothers that I've been watching on Twitter and Facebook are saying some crazy <laughs> stuff. They are. I'm sure. I'm sure. Does he have teeth? Does he? Have, right. I mean, they're just talking like they lost their little right. minds. And right. I just think that we need to really, it's part of this conversation and that and, and we and haven't had in the black community about right. sexual assault and abuse. We we really haven't. Uh, I'm going to take this caller right here. Go ahead, caller. You're on the air. <laughs> Hi, my name is Bailey. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Bailey? I'm doing good. I was calling a reference to what you were talking about as far as like Prada and Gucci you know, doing their designs. I think one mm-hmm. important thing that you all need to realize is that those companies don't design for African Americans. They have well, strictly not. the yeah. Caucasian. Yeah. But yeah. they expect for us to buy. They know we're going to buy. They know we're going to highlight them in our rap music and stuff like that. But they're not designing for us. So right. when you say. That was one of the things 20, I was going to talk about. We know that. Yeah. Right. So yeah. when you say for 2019, how can. I guess you could say their design team thinks it's okay because it's kind of like what Rebecca said, they're bred in their white world. So how they were brought up, what they were educated on, there's nothing wrong with that. How was it that those pictures in blackface were able to go through a panel of eight, eight people or however many you said they were for the yearbook because they're isolated in their community? That's norm for them. Nobody in that there school, even the official school. They were blessed in that medical school. Okay, he but as especially with how people socialize, yeah, with, with how right. people socialize. Like when I yeah. went to law school at Nebraska, extremely white, black folk, the yeah. few handful of black kids did not socialize with the white kids. So mm-hmm. if we had a yearbook, the likelihood of socialization to even have those conversations or to look over someone's shoulder and say, hey, you can't do that, it probably would not have happened. Well, the problem is, is that with Prada and with Gucci, look at their management, look at their teams. Right. Where are the blacks? Exactly. That's the exactly. issue. And that's and that's the and, issue you know, with all the these major people, companies. Right. To put they don't have they don't have anybody black in their design team or in their Precisely. marketing team or Precisely. on their boards or in their management Period. sector. Or exactly. So that's that's the area that you have and, to deal and you with. can't. And you can't say this is white innocence because they purposefully, in Prada and Gucci's instance, they pull black sample imagery, which means you have to go out of your way to get that imagery. You knew what it meant when you did that. And that yeah, and that's my so point. They knew was, what it meant, not, but they are designing innocent. for African. Yeah, but I guess they're designing. And I get that. Denigrate African Americans. No, they're not. Yeah. They're designing for Caucasians. Who black, they will black, know want to denigrate African Americans, precisely. Right, but at the end, you know, right, I mean, but at, <laughs> but I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of education because those shoes that yeah. um, Mr. Williams was talking about, I think the young gener- the young generations are the ones that the millennials are the ones that are spending nine hundred dollars on shoes, not your forty plus year olds. We're not doing that, and I bet I'm you a, a lot of them don't even I'm still know what. Off <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I know, some, yeah, but I know some, yeah, there's a lot that are paying off loans, but trust and believe they're still spending that money. They're still running up the credit card. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is, is that there are a lot of younger folks who aren't educated in what that meant when K- Katy Perry created those shoes or when that sweater was created. They don't know. And a lot of it, like with my, my, with my, they're in D.C. 
the neighborhood that they grew up in is an older neighborhood. A lot of the parents are are dying. Are now all those pa- are are the children renting out the homes to have residual income and to build family wealth? No. First thing they do, oh. You know, the house is paid for. The house in the neighborhood now is worth $600,000. Let's go ahead and sell it for four hundred. you know, and then it gets flipped. So they're looking for the instant cash. They don't realize, oh, you know, if we hold on to it, if we renovate it, we can make create wealth for our family. So I think a lot of it at the end of the day on both sides is a total lack of education. Uh, yes and no. You know, I, you know, I think education is a component. But I also think there's some deliberate, uh, you know, white supremacy at play. And I, you know, when it True. comes to white racism, my my position is no excuses, no excuses. I'm not looking for excuses. My my position is stop the damn behavior, just stop it. And let's well, we know, know that there's some people who don't want to stop it. For black folks, for black folks. I think it's, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us watched the Teddy Pendergrass thing, uh, you know, that great buy-up the other night. And it's just wake up. Come on, black folks. You know, wake up. We can do better. Let's, you know, let's hold people accountable. Let's, you know, let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's be the part. I mean, let's be great. You know, I, I thought Cardi B, you know, Cardi B's performance last night, I don't know if people deconstructed it. And analyze what she did with her with her performance. It was almost like almost on the quality of a Beyonce, where she purposefully reached back and paid tribute, as did Alicia Keys, to their black ancestors, to those because uh, her whole tribute to Josephine to Josephine Baker, which most people missed, was gorgeous. And it's that kind of awareness that kind of conscious building that we have to really infuse into our community. Well, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Push- <laughs> go ahead, Rebecca. We're going to go ahead. I'll and- wrap this up quickly. Back to what the caller is saying. I think education is a component because white supremacy does not work unless there's ignorance and lack of information. Right. Yeah, oh, that's well, true. And, but it's, but it's, but it's not just ignorance and information. There's an investment right. in it, everybody. There's That's an true. absolute investment. People and want I think, the advantage. Of and I think you also, they want And it. I think you have to look. And you have to look at the idea that even though I was gonna, and one of my questions was gonna be, is this a Tommy Hilfiger <laughs> moment? Is it like, yeah, I don't design for you, but I don't mind you wearing it because I want your money and I want your cash because naturally, hey, if you want to pay for it, you want to buy it. I'm never going to refuse you from doing that. But I'm not designing for you because I'm designing for the European guy who's in London, who's in Paris, who's in Norway, who's in Sweden, who's going to pay this $900 for it or wear it and do everything and not, and not worry about it. And they're going to think it's cool. They're going to think it's exciting. They're going to think it's funny, and they're going to pay for it. It's a little uh, nostalgia piece that we're going to pick up, and we're going to use it. We're going to wear it. But not having the, the wherewithal and the sensitivity of recognizing what it says and what it means is the issue. And like Barbara said, oh, they know because they had to look it up. They know. They know. Right. They had to look it up. So what's at stake for us, Barbara? Well, what everything's at stake. And I think this is a serious moment within the African-American community for mm-hmm. serious con- conscious raising. And frankly, it's happening. I mean, you know, we, we talk about young people too 
too stratified. We talk like there's only one homogeneous set. A lot of the awareness that's being driven right now in the African-American community is coming from young people who are, you know, analyzing the stuff, calling it out, not taking it anymore. And that's what we need. And we need the older people to stop talking so bad about the younger people and to start supporting and start looking for ways to expose white supremacy. Look at what are the intervening strategies. I really love, you know, what uh, Darity's been talking about, what Ray Wimbush, who will be my guest tomorrow, will be talking about, about reparations, about ways of building, you know, uh, greater wealth equity to challenge the inequities that have been built up over the centuries, uh, to challenge, you know, the, the education of the black mind, to invest in that. I just think those are some of the things that have to happen, and I'm glad that you know, I had Tim Wise on my show last week to talk about oh, I love the Tim. white mind. What oh, we I gotta do him. to the white what we gotta do yeah. for the white mind. Because the white yeah. mind has to change too. So there's yeah. a lot of work to be done here. You know, but but basically we gotta look at this moment and see it as catalytic and that is our opportunity to really start reconstructing in a different way a new America. And that until we get that fundamental commitment, until we take those steps to really restructure this entire thing from, from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom, until we restructure it all, then we stay caught up in what I call the cage, the cage right. of this uh, racist society. Rebecca, what's at stake for us? Because what, uh, what um, uh, Barbara was saying is very true. I think we need to be prepared because I don't think – we're preparing ourselves for the takeover, if you will, in which right. we will be the majority. I think we're still sitting back saying, okay, 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 and <laughs> other parts aren't really believing it, but then we're not putting ourselves in the economic, the social, and the political structure and the confines to be able to take advantage of when that shift comes. So what's at stake for us? So I think there's something actually bigger that's at stake. I think what's at stake is specifically African-American and racist, um, because when we look at the different conversations that's happened the last month, like the conversation at Davos, dealing with the future of the economy, the future of what the workforce looks like. Oh, right, right, right. Conversations, I didn't hear anything um, about African-Americans. I didn't even hear anything about where African-Americans will be in this economy. And so I think what that saying is that we're literally, you know, like that Avengers movie. There's going to be a snap of the finger and half of us are going to be done. And no one's going to know where we went. And there will be some people who don't even care that we did go. So I think our erasure, our future presence in this society, I think it's at stake. And I, 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 I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and we're certainly going to have to talk about that because that meeting in Davo right. was, oh. oh, my God. That, that was just <laughs> I mean, the we the, weren't even the, there. The wealth, no, exactly. There was there was no one of color there. No one of color there except for the folks said, who were serving food. Yeah, and they said mean, everything. They compete in the future um, globally that the minimum level of education is going to have to be the PhD 
level, and then they talk about investing right. into a pipeline of increasing the number of PhDs. But as, as right. we listen to them talk about it, it wasn't talking about black folks getting them into, you know, make no. sure their third grade reading proficiency, but literally no. about the white kids who are already at the master's level. How do we get them into Correct. a PhD program? How do we get them into PhD programs? And, 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 and remember and there were no African. And what about African nations? There were no they weren't African there. nations. But, my, but the point the discussion, is, the whole weren't even, these people weren't even talking about them. But now specifically, I am concerned about African Americans because there's only 38 million of us left. Granted, there's a greater African diaspora, um, close to, what, 780 million? But sweet, there's only 38 million of us African Americans. So what happens to us? At some point, we do have to advocate for us. Otherwise, we won't be here in a couple of generations. And well, I see 38, I see 38 million out of 300 but the is really will be, yeah. what position will we be in? I, you know, right, I think exactly. we will, but the question is what position will we be in? Will we well, be in a like coordinated, low income right. position, or will we be yeah. Where are close you to any kind of equality? Well, that has always been my thing. But it can go worse, honey. Don't think it can yeah. be worse. Yeah, that has always right. been my thing. We can disappear. Where are we going to be? Worse. Where are we going right. to be in the in the pecking order? Are we going to be a majority, but are we going to be the right. minority in the majority of our own majority? Right. And 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 where we stand but then? And, and what's the of us out of history books? Yeah. And you know, what is culture eraser? Right. But remember, you guys, there would be no, people get our history so confused. There would be no civil rights laws but for the African bloc. I mean, let's, you know, I mean, I, you know, I teach right. this you know, about right. what, how we need to understand human rights and where, and where the civil rights that came but into see, the United States But what we States also have to do, from. Barbara, but what we right. also have to do is we have to learn how and understand that we have to do lobbying and policy driven yes. uh, uh, advocacy yes. and not just social we advocacy where we stand up and well, talk. I keep telling people politics yes. starts with policy. It's not yes. called we personality ticks, party ticks. Exactly. It's called politics. <laughs> so we exactly. Wouldn't, we wouldn't have sexual harassment laws in the workplace if it wasn't for those first cases in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, which were black women who brought those cases mm-hmm. forward. Right. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, workplace protections that we would not have had if it wasn't for African Americans in the workplace. So yes, well, well, the first, fact, well, the first to, well, actually, the first Title Seven. All of I was, them. When I teach, I point out to people that the first Title Seven was written in the first Constitution of Haiti. If you look at their first Constitution on employment law. And what's banned and what's permitted, it looks just like Title Seven of the yep. Civil Rights Act of 1964. Or Title VII so looks call- just like the Haitian Constitution. Exactly, exactly. No, and that's that what we way. need to understand right. that we owe so much. We, if we understood better, you know, our entire totality of how we got to where we are now. Well, when we you look at the whole thing, what we need to do. When you look future. at the whole thing, it it was African Americans and all of the fighting and uh, fighting for mm-hmm. equality, which we did, that created a lot of the the uh, affirmative and social justice laws that are protecting everybody else now. 
Yes, and, and a lot of that came out, out of there. the cold. But also, you know, there the reason why we have title, you know, the reason why we have the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it's not just because Kennedy was shot. It's not just because, uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, the Selma March and all this. All this had a play. But it was the fight going on in the United Nations between the Cold War powers that and the African bloc, because the competition was over the African bloc. And it was the African bloc that was saying, well, hell, you know, we got all this you know, competition over us. Let's make some demands for our descendants that are sitting there in the U.S. And that's mm-hmm. what happened. I mean, I just think we mm-hmm. need to... We don't give, you know, our, you know, proper credit, but if we and DeVos and, you know, it's no accident that W.E. DeVos, you know, decided to go to Ghana to die. It's no accident that, you know, Garvey and all of our major, you know, activists and leaders have understood that you've got to have that connection with the African nation. You gotta you gotta have it. I want to thank my guest tonight, Rebecca Carruthers and Barbara Arnwy. <laughs> I want to thank them for joining us tonight. And I want to thank you for listening and joining us as well, because you have to understand that there is always something at stake. And as we discussed tonight, oh, the transformation <laughs> of what's happening in this country, as well as across the globe, is going to impact you in your daily life. So if you have not figured it out yet, continue to listen, continue to work, continue to advocate and do work that's going to make a difference for you and your family. Until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. I want to thank my guests again tonight, and I look forward to joining you again next week here on Black Politics Today. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today.